text for this morning's sermon is Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 56. Luke 1, 46 through 56. Taking a second look at Mary's song this morning. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we now come before you, we come to your word. God, I ask that uh, you would grant us humility, that you might uh, lift us up and exalt us, that we might give glory to you, knowing we could never exalt ourselves. God, I just pray that we learn something of your mercy, something of your character this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I jump into the sermon, and because it's Thanksgiving week coming up, it's been two weeks since we've been together. Uh, Scott preached last week, and uh, I just got to say how thankful I am to have two fellow elders, Scott and David. Uh, I can be gone, I know. They're going to love you. They're going to preach the Word to you. Um, I just know how rare it is in ministry to uh, be able to just be kind of in one step as brothers. And and I am so thankful that God has granted uh, those two guys to me. Uh, and and I'm thankful for you and 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 for this church and uh, it's only by God's grace that that we're even here. Um, this week, as I looked at this text, all is a how it felt for me all week long was like I'm realizing how out of tune my heart was. I mean, that's just the best way I can say it. In comparison of where my heart ought to be in line to the God that we see in Scripture, I just felt like all week long is like humbling, humbling over and over and over. And it's actually my prayer for you this morning that uh, what 
has happened. This is, we're reading the fruit of something that happened in Mary's heart as she read the Old Testament scriptures as these new realities burst forth into her life. She's going to give birth to the Son of God. We get to witness the fruit of her worship. And my prayer is, is that the same thing that Mary knew, we would know. That we might also burst forth in a sense, in worship. I don't know how many of you come here this morning confident in the state of uh, of your heart towards God, that you feel like tuned in and, and if you're like me, you probably come here knowing that you need once again to be aligned as our hearts so quickly stray uh, to other things. So that's my prayer. Just to remind you of where we were a couple weeks ago as we looked at the first part of, uh, of Mary's song here, verses, uh, the first few verses of it. Um, we really looked at Mary's worship, that this praise was coming out of the inward part of her heart, that true worship comes from the soul of a person, from the heart of the person, not from an outward doing the religious thing. And we saw two things that she realized. She realized her humble estate. She wasn't looking at herself saying, boy, am I humble. She's saying, I'm a nobody. And yet God had mercy on me. She recognized her insignificance in light of God's holiness. God looked upon me, the humble estate of His servant, and He's the holy God. That's what awed her. This week, we want to look at this and we want to consider her Savior. Right away, in verse 6, she, she rejoices in God, my Savior. Verse 46 of Luke 1. That's what we're going to look at this morning. What does it mean that God is Savior? And what I'm saying is, if you understand this, what that means, what Mary understood, then your heart also can rejoice in the same way uh, Mary's did. I want you to consider for a moment a scenario. When was the last time you've been awed that the postman brought you mail? Just like in utter amazement and awe that he brought the mail to your door. So that all throughout the week, you're just telling me, you wouldn't believe it, it's... Car pulled up, parked outside. He walked up and he put the mail in my mailbox. You know, rejoice with me. Look at what he did. If you did that, you'd be weird. That, that, that would be really strange for two reasons. First, because this is what the postman is supposed to do. 
It's what he gets paid to do. One of the reasons it would be stupid to go around, and if you're a postman or woman, I don't mean to offend you, but this is just what you're supposed to do. That's what you got hired for. But it would seem strange to do it because it's expected of them. That's why uh, he gets paid. Secondly, the second reason is it's normal. It happens every day. The bills come every day, unfortunately. They keep coming in the mail. So you don't worship the postman. You're not awed by the fact that he brings you mail because in your mind you say he's supposed to and it's normal. If you came here this morning and you're sensing a lack of thanksgiving in your heart, a lack of bursting forth in praise to God, one of the reasons might be is that you've committed the mistake of thinking that God was supposed to save you and me. Mary didn't think that way. Mary is utterly awed that the holy God of the universe would look on her with mercy. See, this is the danger that can happen in every Christian heart is we become unamazed with God's grace because it's normal. You see, we don't worship the postman because he's supposed to do it. Well, God's not supposed to save us. What we deserve is hell. So it's shocking when he steps forth in mercy. It's glorious. It's worthy of praise. But the second thing is like the postman. God is so gracious to you and I that it becomes normal. And so we quit worshiping. He's so extravagant in how He shows us grace and does good things for us, we fail to worship Him. I remember R.C. Sproul illustrating this uh, when he was teaching a seminary class. Uh, the class consisted of three main papers. And right there in the syllabus, first, first day of class, he said, any late papers will receive, uh, you know, the best you can get is a 75%. And no grace. And that's what it is. So the first paper comes around and like 10 people don't have the paper done. They come to RC and say, if we get it done, if we get it to you by tomorrow morning, could we still get full credit? And RC says, sure. If you get it to me by tomorrow morning, you can get full credit. Well, then the second paper comes around and RC says, like you'd expect from human nature, now there's 20 people that don't have the paper done. And they come to him and they say, can we have grace? Can we have to the morning like last time? And he says, sure. Well, the next paper comes around 
30 people don't have it done and they ask for grace and he says, no, you're getting a 75%. And they say, that's not fair. What are you talking about? Last time you gave us to the next morning, you deceived us. Well, what had R.C. done? He had given extravagant grace so that in one moment where he actually gave them what they deserved, they were furious. This is how we are. We don't deserve one breath after we became sinners. And we continually get them. We don't deserve the joy of tasting food, and yet we continually taste it. We don't deserve the joy of community and families, yet He continually gives it to us. And if we ever suffer, what do we do? Is there even a God in the universe? Is there even God? Would He, would he let this happen to me? See, we can get too comfortable in the extravagance of God's grace that we don't worship Him. This is Thanksgiving week. We ought to. It's just a, it's a, it's always right for us to consider the mercy, the absolute mercy of God. And you can be assured when your heart feels dull, you're not wondering anymore. You're not amazed at this merciful Savior. Now, when we look at this song, I want you to see what Mary knows. And, and that's the result of, of her worship. So let's learn from her worship. In this song, there's one group of people that splits into two parts. Here's the group of people. Sinners. There's one pool of people out there after Adam and Eve. Sinners. But within the group of sinners, the Bible distinguishes between proud sinners and humble sinners. Between rich people and poor people. Between rulers and between oppressed. Nobody deserves grace, but we will see who our God is and how He responds to one group within this group of sinners. Uh, here's the goal. Believing, to believe that God is a merciful Savior that will exalt the humble and knock down the proud. I, man, this is... I found myself praying for humility more than normal as I considered this text. And we're going to look at God. It was hard. It, it was, it was hard. This song repeats the same truths. So I'm going to show you the truths in the songs, in the points, and I just, and, and then we're just going to look at the song. Here's what we see. We see God is Savior right away in verse, uh, 48. I mean, in verse 46. But then here's what it means for God to be a Savior. He mercifully looks upon His children according to His promise. What it means for God to be a Savior is that He looks with mercy. We're going to look at that. And the second part of 
what it means that God's a savior is that he acts. So he looks and has compassion, pity, and mercy, but then he does something. He acts. He graciously acts in accordance to his mercy. And he righteously acts in judgment on the proud. What it means for God to be Savior is God not only looks, God not only feels, but he acts in the world. This I think you'll clearly see. I want you to begin. I want to begin by having you look at verse 48. I'll start in verse 46. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary's God is a saving God. She knows she needs one. For, here's the first thing he did. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. And in verse 49, For he who is mighty has done great things for me. So God did two actions. He looked with mercy, and then He went and He did the action according to His mercy to save Mary. God has mercy and He acts and squeezed right between these two. The second part of verse 48, I want you to see this. For He looked on the humble estate of His servant So when God looked in mercy, look at what he says. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. When God acts in mercy, everything changes. From now on, this humble estate of Mary, everything changed when God decided to have mercy on her. God didn't go down and look for the humble person. God, by His grace, had already humbled Mary according to His Word. We we just see that flow out of her mouth in the rest of the song. But God acted according to His mercy so that from now on, everything is different for her. That's That's the theme of this psalm is when God acts in mercy, when God acts to save, everything changes in the world. It gets flipped upside down. And for Mary, blessing came when God showed mercy to her. This is built into the depths of the human heart. And our entertainment proves it. We love reversals. There's a lot of you that probably aren't wrestling fans, and so you don't know how dramatic a reversal in a match can be. But we understand them in stories. We love the underdog that wins, that comes back. You know, the video that came to my mind that's on YouTube is called The Battle at Kruger. And it's in South Africa, and there's this safari, there's... And, the, and there's a river uh, about 40 yards away from this jeep. And you have the guide, and then you can hear all the tourists there. But on the other side, there's five lions that are crouched down. And 
they're just like this. They kind of look like rocks because they're not moving. And there's a herd of Cape, Cape buffalo coming towards the lions. And you can kind of see what's about to happen. I mean, they're getting within like 20, 30 yards. And when they get close enough, you can hear the guides say, those lions are going to go after that baby Cape buffalo there. All of a sudden, the chase is on. And the Cape buffalo turn and run, and this baby Cape buffalo is running right along the river. And this lion makes the most amazing move you've ever seen. Coming full bore, leaps for it like there's a big drop-off into the river, leaps for it with one paw, gets its hand on the buffalo, and they both go flipping into the water. And the other five lions quickly jump on the buffalo, and they're all on top of it like in the edge of the river. And it's just like, that was the most amazing takedown move I've ever seen. It's already amazing. But then the lions start dragging the Cape Buffalo out. And right when they about get the Cape Buffalo out, a huge crocodile comes up and grabs on the other side of the baby Cape Buffalo. If you didn't feel sorry for it before, you're feeling sorry for it now when you're watching the video. And so you have a tug-of-war between the crocodile and the lions, and it goes on for like five, six minutes. I mean, you're just thinking, this would be the most painful thing in the world. And they're like, oh yeah, they, it's over. Lions got the, got, uh, the Cape Buffalo away from the crocodiles and you think it's over. But all of a sudden, a herd of Cape Buffalo start coming back. And they start surrounding the lions. One of the big ones comes in, picks a lion up with its horn and throws it. And they all gather around and amazingly the baby stands up. And they all gather around it, and then they all chase off the lions. Now, here's the thing. Why did I take the time to tell that whole story? Because I'm trying to prove the point that built into your hearts were made for that story. And I can prove it, because if you go click on it today, what you're going to see is 79 million views. 79 million views of this. And there's all sorts of safari clips. Why does this one event take the cake over all the rest? Because it's built into our hearts to want the underdog to win. We want to see this happen. Here's, I just, I just read a few comments. One, this has got to be the most amazing thing that naturally happened, captured on video, ever. Another one, best video of all time. This eight minutes and 24, or eight, eight minutes and 24 second video is better than 90% of movies and the best documentaries. One person said, I would sell my kidney to watch that live. So, why the response? Here's the, here's the question I have, and, and it's the same. I could give you a hundred examples. The reason why people like Rocky movies is Sylvester Stallone is poor. He's a nobody. He's not going to beat the big guy. If the big guy wins, you have no movie. We love Rocky because we like underdog stories. 
So why does God do it this way? Why does God pick Marys of the world? Why does God, as we're going to see, humble the proud, but exalt the humble? It's because you and I are created to glorify God And we cannot glorify God if we glorify ourselves. God cannot get glory for Himself through a proud person. If God wants to use the Apostle Paul, God first has to reveal who He is to Paul. Paul needs to fall in reverent fear of God and be humbled. Then God can use him. Because when Paul is used then, what does he do? He gives all glory back to God. That's what we're going to see in this song. When Jesus Christ shows up, the fortunes of the world get flipped on its head. The last become first and the first become last and Mary knows it. She knows in this song that God is entering in in the person of Christ and everything changes for everybody. The humble are going to be lifted up. The proud are going to be brought down. And because I believe it, now you can understand why I'm praying for humility. This week, it's the nature of who God is as a Savior. So, let's pick up at verse 50 where we left off last time. Here's what we read. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. Mary's just been amazed and worshiped God for what God has done for her. He looked at my humble estate. Everyone's going to call me blessed because of what God has done for me. Now everything's different because of what God has done according to His mercy. But then in verse 50, here's the good news. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. That word mercy, what it means is compassion and pity. It's a little different than grace. Grace is God actually acting upon it for the good of a person. God does that. But our God, Mary's God, the saving God, looks with compassion and pity upon His people. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. What it means to fear Him, it does not mean that God's merciful bounty is uh, manifest to those who just are stand in this like servile fear of God, but rather it's those who stand in awe of God. It's the idea of they know who they are and they know who God is. Remember, there's one group of people. They're sinners, but then they're sinners who see something of who they really are and know something of who God is. Those people stand in awe of God. They actually look to God as a Savior. God's mercy is for those people. Psalm 103.17 says this, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. This whole song is about God's steadfast 
love. His amazing, patient mercy with sinners. And then look at verse 51. This saving God, though, He's shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. So those who stand in fear of God get the mercy of God. But for those who are proud, He scatters them. He's shown strength with His arm. This is the statement of God's power. When it talks about God's arm, it's when we consider the strength of God. Um, the and, and notice it says He scatters the proud. We, we should ask the question, who are the proud? In the thoughts of their hearts. Their pride was in their thinking. It, it's where we get the word like conceit. God is against those who think of themselves way too high and think of God way too low. That, that, that's what it means to be proud. Their thoughts. The word kind of means scheming. In the scheming of their minds. Proud people are always seeking to keep themselves afloat. To keep themselves satisfied. To keep themselves fed. And they never look outside themselves. They're scheming in their heart. I can see my heart doing this often where I begin to scheme. I try to look for comfort and stability elsewhere. And what it is is it's arrogance and pride. And when you think of God, so God opposes the proud, it gives grace to the humble. He does this for Christians and non-Christians. For Christians, He acts as a father. If you become proud, He's going to knock you down for your good as a child. Just like parents wouldn't want to foster pride in their children. God doesn't want to foster pride in His children. Uh, I mean, this is one of the best thoughts I got in my mind, I think, that keeps me in the fear of God is God is a good Father. He's a perfect parent, and He believes in discipline. So if I want to go another way than God's ways, I'm going to get spanked. He will humble me. He will bring me down. But for the non-believer, God will scatter them in judgment. It's different. God always opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. But for the unbelieving proud, those who have never been humbled, in a sense, there's judgment. Um, Psalm 89.10 we're going to spend a lot of time in the Psalms because Mary is alluding to these in this song. It says this, You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours, the earth are yours, and the world that and all that is in it, you have founded them. His point is this, you scatter them with your arm and your arm created everything. This is the God that we have to stand in awe of. In Deuteronomy 3.24, Moses says, O Lord, You only have begun to show Your servant Your greatness in Your mighty hand. For 
For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty is yours? Moses is saying, we've only begun to see the strength of your might, what you can do to your enemies. And then in Deuteronomy 7.17, in this text where he's arguing with them, I didn't pick you because you were big or because you were strong. I didn't choose you because I thought you would be good candidates to defeat your enemies. Earlier on in, in Deuteronomy 7, he basically says, I chose you and I loved you because I loved you. Because I chose to love you. Not because you were big. Not because you were lovable. Because of my mercy, Israel, I chose you. So then, in verse 17, he says this, If you say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, because God's going to lead them into Canaan. How can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. See, God didn't just have mercy on those in slavery. He acted. He went and did it. The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arms by which the Lord your God brought you out, so will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. If God is your Savior, He acts on your behalf. He says, don't be afraid because I'm the one who looked on you with mercy and I'm the one who acts on your behalf. And then look at verse 52 of Luke 1. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. This is what God does. He brings down the mighty. He exalts those of humble estate. Psalm 147, 5 and 6 says this, Great is our Lord, abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble and He casts the wicked to the ground. Uh, he says it most simply uh, in James 4.6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you're, if, if you're here this morning and you're not concerned about your own pride, it is only because you don't believe this God exists that Mary's talking about, or you believe that you've rid yourself of all pride. I think when I read God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble, what that makes me want to do is be humbled by God to understand who He is so that I might stand in reverence of Him so that I can be lifted up by Him. If I try to prove that I stand, he'll knock me down. He'll show me my arrogance and, and foolishness of trusting in myself. And then look at verse 53. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. It sounds an awful lot like Hannah's uh, prayer when, when she rejoiced uh, at the birth of um, Samuel. She said in 1 Samuel 2.5, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry 
have ceased to hunger. The barren is born seven, but she who has many is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol. He raises up. The Lord makes poor and He makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them He has set the world. God acts. God is working. He's doing two things. He's knocking down and He's raising up. And we know that His mercy is for those who fear Him. If you have your Bibles and want to follow along on a couple of these, the psalmists capture this over and over and over and over again. And I just want you to hear them. Uh, We're just going to work our way through the Psalms through a few of these. You can start in Psalms 9, verse 17. Psalm 9, 17. The wicked shall return to Sheol and all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Mary says, finally, now the world's going to call me blessed. Now God has exalted me according to His mercy. And then in verse 19 of that's of Psalm 9, Arise, O Lord, let man not prevail. Let the nations be judged before You. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Let them know that they're not God. Let them be humbled. And then if you want to turn to Psalm 12, uh, starting in verse 1. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off the flattering lips and the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we prevail, with our lips, uh, our, our lips are with us, who master over us. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. It's, it's the most beautiful picture of God coming in to the broken. Coming in to those who know who they are, knowing their sinful state, and saying, now I am going to act on your behalf. I'm going to act according to my mercy. Psalm 18.27 For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you will bring down. Psalm 107, 8 and 9. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. I'm just going to wait for you to turn there because I don't want you to miss this one. Psalm 107.8 Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul He fills with good things. Isn't it a beautiful picture? One more. Psalm 146. 
starting in verse 3. Put not your trust in princes in the Son of Man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is from the God of Jacob, the, the, the God of promise, whose hope is in the Lord, who made the heavens and earth, the sea, and all the things that is in them. He is strong, who keeps faith forever. He's a God who keeps his promises who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. And the Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked He brings to ruin. He says, you want to trust in man and princes and horses? When they die, their plans are gone. But the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who keeps His promises, if you hope in Him and you're hungry, you will be fed. He will fill your hearts. I just got way too many here, I guess. Let's just look at verse 54. Here's where we see how His mercy is according to His promise. He's helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. God the Savior keeps his promises that he made to Abraham, keeps his promises that he made to Eve, that from their line, blessing would come to the whole world. From them, everything would be made right. The proud, the those who are unjust, those who oppress others, one day will be brought down. And one day, the poor, the needy, the oppressed, the widow, when God acts in mercy towards the humble, everything changes. And God did decisively act on your and my behalf when He put Jesus Christ in Mary's womb, that she might give birth to the Son of God, Jesus Christ didn't only have compassion on you and I, He went and He did the work to bring about our salvation for us. So that when you come to trust in Christ, everything changes. Yeah, you may be oppressed now. Yeah, it might seem like people in the world are getting away with stuff, but in Christ, it's all made right. He will lift up those who are humbled. My prayer is, in light of this, the three things, in light of Mary's song, we ought to, one, stand in awe of God. In light of who we are, in our sin, we ought to stand in awe that God would show mercy to sinners. But to stand in awe of His holiness. We ought to be humbled. We ought to kneel in prayer that you might be humble and broken. Now, I'm serious. You might say, kneel in prayer to be, that I might be humble and broken. Are you, this is the most sane thing in the world. God works against the proud. He opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. 
we ought to be begging for humility that we might see God more clearly, be more broken over our sin in our pride and our arrogance and trying to boost ourselves up. And third, rest in your Savior's mercy and work on your behalf. Isn't this good news? God saved Mary and He saves us not because we were good enough, but because He was merciful and He acted on our behalf. That's the only Savior that works for me. Because I'll screw it up otherwise. If i got to be good enough, I'm in trouble. There's no salvation for Sam. But if what it takes to be saved is by God's grace to look into God's Word, understand something of who God is, be broken over my sin, and desperately say, I have no hope except in the living God who's the saving God, then there's hope for me. And the Gospel is that you and I, we're all sinful. We're all rebels. We all take for granted God's mercy and grace in our life. We all become proud. We all search for other ways rather than going to God first. But there's good news. If we can be broken and trust in a saving God, then for all eternity, all the angels, everyone will say, Sam's blessed. You're blessed. God showed mercy to you. He acted on your behalf. God did. You can say with Mary, God has done great things for me. Here's what you need to know. God is a merciful God who is patient and keeps His promises and saves the broken. My prayer is that you're broken and that you look to Him and see Him as that Savior. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that by Your grace You gave Mary insights into Your holiness and who You were. That You gave her insights into Your mercy and grace that we might learn from her worship and we also might respond in worship as we're amazed at Your grace for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.